Welcome back to the Alts Podcast. I'm your host, Horatio Ruiz. We bring you industry leaders and creators to give their insights on the rapidly changing and exciting world of alternative assets. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the host and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. The intro song, Fishing for Pets, is written and composed by Alan Goldscher from his latest release, Live at the Lakeview Lounge. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Our guests are Brian Harstein and Andrew Hill. Andrew is a managing associate of the law firm Frost Brown Todd and one of the leading experts in blockchain and cryptocurrency law in the country. Brian is a CEO of Acquire, a company that is tokenizing securities of private equity deals. This is Brian's second time on the podcast, and we're looking forward to getting updates on Acquire. In this episode, we'll discuss the advantages and diversity of blockchain technology and legal issues in the space, among other things. Let's jump in. All right, guys. So thank you for joining the podcast today. We have uh, Brian again. He's a return guest. Uh, Brian, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, He's joined by one of the leading lawyers uh, in terms of security tokenization, one of the leading lawyers in regards to the blockchain. Drew Hill, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Brian, last time we talked, you know, we talked about acquiring, we're talking a little bit about, you know, where the company was headed, some of the the things that you were kind of uh, had in the works, right? And uh, you certainly have had uh, some movement in that space. You know, we have Drew here for the first time. And I know Drew's been with you since you were founding the company. And I was wondering if he could kind of share his insights, kind of uh, what he does on the legal side, because it really is kind of kind of fascinating being a lawyer in this in this kind of crazy world of blockchain. Yeah, I've been practicing with Frost Brown Todd um, in the blockchain and cryptocurrency practice uh, since 2019. The practice itself dates to 2017. So kind of the peak ICO days, you know, we've seen kind of everything under the sun in blockchain and crypto space, uh, multiple market cycles, and, you know, Recent events tend to lead us to believe we may be entering into another uh, fun crypto winter. So um, that's where I think builders like Brian and, and projects like Acquire really uh, show their value and kind of gives them an opportunity to to put their heads down and build and uh, come out the other side ready to take advantage of the next market cycle. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point. Like when you have a crypto winter or just in general, a downturned economy, which is what's happening now. Most people, they start to pull back a little bit. They're not as freely investing, uh, whether it's individuals, venture firms, private equity firms, these angel investors, they they still allocate a lot of money. They still realize that like building has to occur. Companies have to grow. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when they do pull that back a little bit, uh, you know, 15, 20%, you know, you see companies like ours shift our focus from, you know, just purely raising money uh, left and right so that we can increase our growth to, like Drew said, you know, building value, you know, focusing on the product, uh, focusing on the user and doing a lot of more intelligent market research on on what we're doing. How essential has, has Drew been like working through this blockchain process with these, these laws, these regulations? It seems to me from the outside looking in, right, I'm not an industry expert uh, from a legal standpoint, there's a lack of clarity, right? So How is the law applied to the blockchain right now, Drew? Well, the the answer is we're still using uh, orange groves from Howey in the 1930s to apply to digital assets and security tokens and everything else. 
So we're working with well-worn frameworks. I, I always say there's really nothing new under the sun. And it's, it's a matter of fitting the technology into the existing frameworks until further clarity gets um, rolled out. So uh, I, I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but there are certainly examples where technology gets ahead of regulation and creates some um, difficult challenges to, to overcome. I think as far as acquires concerned, and Brian can speak more fully to this, the focus is 100% on compliant, regulatory compliant products to offer to users. And so for us as lawyers, I mean, honestly, that makes the job easy because we, we can identify where the, where the bright lines are and we make sure we don't cross them. And, um, you know, there isn't a gray area that needs to be treaded into. Yeah, I mean, the products that we are focused on, they are built on blockchain technology, right? We're using it as a rail. It's no different than when we shifted from paper to Excel spreadsheets, right? It, it increased our efficiency and increased uh, how much we could build and what we could build. Uh, and using blockchain is another evolution of financial markets. Uh, and it doesn't just mean cryptocurrencies or stable coins or NFTs. You know, we are using that technology to power traditional assets and bring them to users at a scale that uh, has previously been more costly, uh, less efficient. And, you know, now we can actually bring these users assets that previously they were even unable to have access to due to costs, regulation and so on. So, yeah, I mean, Drew and and Frost Brown and everybody that works with us on the legal side, you know, it's been a, a really crazy learning curve going up and down through you know, what we can do uh, on a technology side versus what we uh, are allowed to do on a regulatory side. And then marriaging those two pieces into a product that, uh, that can still, you know, realize as much of the blockchain's potential as possible without crossing any sort of, you know, regulatory lines in the sand, so to speak. The thing I like about Brian's approach to the technology is that it his users are technology agnostic. They're not, they don't need to know what's going on under the hood to be able to take advantage of the technology. I think objectively crypto and the blockchain is not intuitive to adopt, to understand it. You really have to jump in and you're kind of, there are no guardrails. So, you know, people lose a lot of money uh, through mistakes and, and, and things like that. But, you know, companies that are building using that technology don't need to expose their users to it directly in order to benefit. Well, you, you touch on something interesting. There's two types of users. You have your early adopters and then you have the rest of the world, right? The early adopters are the ones that are building blockchain right now. They're, they're inside of these various DeFi protocols. They're playing with NFTs, you know, and they are the ones that are going to be very interested in what we're doing from a technical level. But then there's the other users that are sitting out there that go, look, if it's better, if it's faster, if it's cheaper, if it gets me access to something I didn't have access to before, then I'm in, right? Uh, they don't care about what's under the hood as much as the early adopters do. It's very much the same way that, I mean, I honestly have no idea how the internet works, but I use it every day. <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that as a technology lawyer, but here we are. That's a good point. You're laying out some reasons for why, you know, what you're doing and using the blockchain uh, would benefit anybody, would benefit an investor, would benefit somebody that's interested in looking maybe in, in diversifying their, their portfolio. But there's always that, that thing, right? Like why the blockchain? Why are you building it uh, in a way that's not the traditional methods? And I wonder if you could talk to why did you decide to do the blockchain? And, and specifically, like, 
if someone's seeing this this crazy crypto market, this crazy you know uh, situation where we have regulators, you know, Capitol Hill talking about how they need to regulate, regulate. Do you feel like that scares away potential investors, potential users of a platform like Acquire? Uh, on the other hand, it actually does the opposite for us in particular. You know, the more clarity that comes around blockchain, and and Drew can definitely speak to that part. Uh, the more you know that it becomes regulated or regulated to a certain extent, hopefully not overregulated, because that does tend to you know limit uh, the amount of innovation that we can have. But I think that for us in particular. Because we are working in the bridge between traditional and this blockchain world, allowing that regulation to exist and be programmed into the asset itself, it allows anybody from the traditional world or the blockchain world seeking a more compliant product or a compliant vehicle that's still utilizing this technology allows them to come to us for that solution. You know, so we we have two business lines. There's some B two B services that we are. Uh, working through, and then we have our, you know, direct to consumer app, which is bringing private placement assets, you know, an alternative type assets, not really on the collectible side, to direct to users. Uh, but yeah, I think that when the regulators push it, you know, they say, "Hey, this has to be regulated." The whole world says, "Okay, well, if we're going to use this technology, we need to do it in a compliant way, in an automated compliant way," and that's literally the 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 position, the the fork that we sit at. As a company, and I think the technology can be leveraged to Brian's point to reduce costs and friction in, in markets without people really knowing that that's the technology that's serving that role. And a perfect example is kind of low hanging fruit, like a transfer agent. In a in a, in a way, a tra- traditional stock is settled, and and really, blockchain can and tokenized securities can be self settling. So. That would potentially remove a middleman friction layer from an entire um, securities trading system that, you know, simply doesn't exist right now and adds cost whether we know it or not. Yeah, I mean, it's a, transfer agents are interesting. There's a number of entities that exist behind these markets. Let's take collectibles. This is a world that a lot of your users, you know, play in, in the alternative space. Uh, you've got collectible.com and masterworks and rally road and things like that. And you know, what powers those markets is broker dealers, ATSs, transfer agents, and a decent amount of legal frameworks, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's built in a way to, you know, provide liquidity to assets that were previously illiquid. The only way you could get ownership of one of these things is to shell out a bunch of money. Now they're fractionalizing it. They're putting it onto a marketplace and they're giving you the ability to own a piece of it and get, you know, the the type of appreciation that you normally see with these type of artworks or cars, you know, uh, over the long term. And they are very uncorrelated with uh, traditional assets or markets, which is a very cool place to be. But those entities like a transfer agent that still exist on the back end of that market, they're already going into a fully automated system that does use the blockchain. There's several transfer agents we work with. Uh, directly that basically just they have to keep two two databases one on the blockchain which then feeds that information back over the cap table uh, the the proof and record of ownership back over to what they would call a compliant database which is just a regular spreadsheet uh, and that's the thing that the SEC likes to look at rather than you know on-chain data but all the on-chain data is what's actually powering the settlement transactions. You're talking about 
building almost like a, a, a traditional business in terms of like a current technology, right? In the, of the future, the a current business platform of the future. And I think it's important to kind of uh, be able to separate that from that, that kind of blockchain development from the madness, right? Of say UST from what's happening right now where people are, are being liquidated 100%, losing their life savings, uh, you know, apparently. I always feel like in, there's a public perception where it's difficult to rip the two apart, right? And a lot of our readers as well, like anything blockchain related means it's associated with the headlines and kind of like uh, the, the market meltdowns. Could you talk a little bit more about that, like how they're not related at all. You're talking about two different types of uses for the blockchain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Drew's dealt with legal across God knows how many levels of blockchain applications. Like I said earlier, you have NFTs, you have stable coins, which is UST. You've got you know, securities tokenization, which is the compliant form that we deal with. You have cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on. And when you're talking about a stable coin, there are so many flavors of stable coins as well. Meaning what makes it stable? What's the technology? What's the mechanism behind it that's making it stable? What is it backed with? You know, is it backed one-to-one US dollars to one coin? Or is it backed with some other type of asset? Is it backed with gold? Is it backed with a basket of assets? Uh, and you're seeing with some of these structures that are being built and innovated on to try to create, you know, more efficient or hypothetically more efficient stable coins that some of those structures aren't fully built yet. Uh, they're realizing flaws. And like all developers, you know, you have to break things to fix those flaws. And you're seeing the U.S., I guess, Senate Banking Committee, Janet Yellen, and everybody really using these flaws and when they do occur to say, look, guys, over here, there's issues. We have to regulate this. People are using this. And uh, she's going to the, as far as to say, look, by tw- the end of 2022, I want to see something you know, in stone from our regulators, specifically revolving around stable coins. You know, I'm, I'm fully supportive of stable coins, but not all stable coin is created equal, right? So just be aware of how the stable coin's built, what's backing it, and which one to use. Yeah, I think the general cryptocurrency token market still feels a little bit like the wild, wild west. And so I understand the, the skepticism that people have, but I, I think it's important, again, to just Note that the technology itself is different than a potential use case or application of that technology. And so I think it's important not to just dismiss it wholesale because of bad headlines associated with certain products or, you know, scams or otherwise, when there is very real building going on and very real, real world applications that will be and are coming down the line. And I think notwithstanding the current market, whether it's traditional equity markets or um, crypto markets that, uh, you know, the trend that, that we've been seeing over the last 12 months is, is a lot more serious venture, private equity, and institutional money looking at the space and looking at people building in the space, seeing a lot of capital formation around these, these types of companies, and less, I think, focus on uh, the crypto assets as uh, an investment class, but again, putting putting money and weight behind builders in the space. That's a that's a huge point, right? Institutional players they used to have this phrase, right, when they were talking about Bitcoin or blockchain in general, the applications of finance. When we say tokenize the world, things like that, they would say something like, uh, "It's it's an if." And then it evolved after a couple years uh, towards 2017 to now. It's just a matter of when. 
And then now here we are in 2022 and Bitcoin earlier this year popped to 66 and now it's down all the way down to 30, but still much higher than it was in 2017. And, you know, now the, they are literally doing it right. They are working with blockchain. They're It's inside of their business lines, not across their entire companies yet, but they're utilizing blockchain to make some of their business lines more efficient. So it's, it's no longer if it's no longer when it's actually happening now uh, at the institutional level. That says everything. If they're moving that direction, if the people that are managing, you know, $10 billion under a single, you know, organization or more are sitting there going, how can we utilize this to improve our functions? Then, you know, I think that uh, it's, it's, you know, time for everybody else to start asking those questions as well. Yeah, you get the headlines. Uh, and as a quick example, like I know JP Morgan, right? So the employees were banned from talking Bitcoin. And this is back in the, the mid 2000s. All the while, they're using a blockchain in their business, like in their business line, you know, to, to streamline their operations because of Bitcoin, because of what they saw, with, uh, you know, the blockchain through Bitcoin. So then they start developing their own blockchain. Really curious how, how you do that. Uh, Brian, I wanted to get into Acquire. You know, um, we talked a month, month and a half ago, and I wanted to talk to you about like the latest developments, what you're getting ready to launch. So we are, you know, I think I've said this before, but we're drinking our own Kool-Aid, right? So we are tokenizing our own equity using technology that we are developing uh, alongside of some of our partners, and we are offering that out to the public. So we've been busy developing and producing a lot of new materials, uh, revamping the uh, prototype of the app into a beta and bringing that to the public and allowing them to become shareholders in our company, uh, utilizing you know, two different forms or two different ways to become a shareholder. We're going to engage, you know, the average uh, average person through a WeFunder uh, later this this month, and then we're going to also launch a security token offering sequentially, which is specifically with our technology, and that's going to be probably in about two months. So sequentially after we close the WeFunder. So Drew's been working with us quite a bit, figuring out all the ins and outs of bringing a security token direct to consumers. Uh, we've been working with a lot of different you know, regulatory compliant partners like uh, our broker dealer, right? Our transfer agents. And basically, you know, we're, we're prepped to launch something that uh, we think is one of the first of its kind because we're tying it to something called uh, an access card NFT. You know, and it's, it's a very interesting way to incentivize and give more value back to our shareholders. And this is not you know, your typical NFT that's just like a board eight, you know, where it's art. You know, we're actually using it as uh, a card that gets linked to your account within our app, uh, gives you discount on trading fees, gives you rights to first looks on new investments that will appear on the app in the future before the public. Uh, so these are the tangible benefits that an investor or a user of our app can actually use to create value for themselves. And on top of that, this is a membership card that you can actually sell on a secondary market. You know, one of our marketing guys pointed out that evidently, if the if you sell it, you reduce your cost basis on the equity in our company. So, <laughs> thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it's 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 a kind of a cool thing. It's the first of its kind in that in that way, and we're really excited about bringing it out to the public. And I'm I'm happy that Drew helped us get it done in the right way. So yeah, that's what's coming up here soon, and hopefully we'll hit our beta launch and get all of our users and holders and shareholders of this NFT access to that beta launch exclusively, you know, late this year. If an investor wants to get involved, you know, 
Should they get involved uh, in the WeFunder? Should they get involved with the, the, the security token? You know, obviously maybe the answer is both. What's the difference there? Great question. Yeah, so on the WeFunder, traditionally people that may not have a digital wallet, right? They may not have digital assets that they want to engage or purchase their shares with, their their equity, you know, stake in. You know, they're probably going to go through a WeFunder. This is just something where, you know, you you log into a regular app uh, or regular web portal run by WeFunder, who we've partnered with for this. And then they just link a bank account, a credit card, and they're able to pay and and purchase that equity directly through the WeFunder. We now take that cap table and we have tokens waiting for that person, uh, whether they want to spin up a, a wallet now or if they want to wait till they you know download the beta app, uh, they will have also the actual tokens waiting for them. So this is, uh, the WeFunder is just a, a fiat currency, a US dollar way of engaging with the offering. The STO launching a little bit later, this is targeted towards more DeFi people, people that understand Ethereum or stable coins or you know, other methods to um, move around that decentralized finance ecosystem. And they may already be holding those. They may not want to you know, sell it in order to buy their equity. So we've created you know, a, a security token gate, a compliant security token gate that allows those users to connect their wallets, go through a KYC AML system, you know, and then that gives them access as long as they pass into this gate that allows them to, you know, get their shares. You know, they can transfer half an Ethereum or Ethereum, uh, or they can transfer some uh, USDC, which is one that I actually like on the stablecoin side. And in exchange, directly through that smart contract, they get those tokens direct to the wallet. Uh, now, either user will have those tokens waiting for them in their Acquire account, uh, whether you go fiat currency or if you're in the De- DeFi side, and you're able to use these shares, these smart shares that we call them in- internally, as uh, a means to claim uh, your NFT access card. Drew, how's how's what Acquire is doing with the, that security token? How is that unique in the, the you know the investment space, and uh, how do you see it playing out as far as the innovation in the space? Yeah, well, so I, I guess the first the first piece is you know the the WeFunder is through what's known as a Reg CF, so that's the crowdfunding regs that were kind of rolled out in the early 2010s, I think. And uh, you know, as Brian mentioned, it, it's kind of links into his platform service after the fact. On on the security token side, this this is really done via what's an exempt private offering, private placement. So. This is the world of accredited investors. And again, this is kind of a well-worn path for um, private equity, venture capital, and, and otherwise that uh, it's novel to me in that um, in, in the connection that he's building between the offering and p- other products and services that the platform can offer. But again, as I said at the start, there's really nothing new under the sun here when it comes to securities offerings. You either have to do it via a valid registration or you have to do it via a valid exemption. And for Brian, he's doing one from each column. You also mentioned, Brian, uh, the, that third component there where you, you're, you know, you're going to launch it later, the, the NFT, right? The, the access card. And you mentioned the kind of the utility behind it and what it, what it allows you to do. And you mentioned it's not a board ape NFT. It's not a, you know, a picture or an art. It's actually, it's actually going to be useful for your platform. How can someone who's not technical, right, engage with the NFT? Is it something that's also going to maybe be on their platform, under their wallet, you know? And, and so it's almost like we talked about this before. You're engaging with a, with the technology without really knowing it. 
and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about having being an NFT owner without having to have all this, you know, knowledge. Yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people are confused a lot of times when they enter or they start talking about or hearing NFTs. You know, memberships come to mind. Uh, This is sort of, in a way, a membership. It's a card that gives them access. It gives them perks and benefits, tangible benefits within our ecosystem. And it is transferable, right? So if I'm a member at a golf course or something, you know, and I choose to stop paying and leave that membership, you know, I'm no longer a member of that golf course. And that golf course now has the ability to go and sell that again. Uh, But if I'm a member holding this access card, I can sell my membership to another person, right? Uh, Rather than, you know, the entity, uh, in this case, the golf club selling it to that other person. So that's like one one example. It gives the, the user ownership over that membership and it gives them the ability to kind of reap potential rewards from it. You know, for example, if there is some sort of whale that occurs in our app in the future, we hope that there's going to be a lot of those playing in and out of this market. They may see very meaningful, tangible benefit for getting 25% discount on their trading fees. And if you're an early shareholder holding this card, I would assume that that would be very valuable to that other whale who's doing a lot more volume and likely to see a lot more benefit with a discount like that. Now, if you're you're not very technical, you don't have a digital wallet, but you've become a shareholder. When you actually build your account, right, we are going to see that you're a shareholder. It will show up in your account and then the NFT access card will be claimable in your account as well. So we're taking a lot of the, you know, the guesswork out of it uh, for those types of users. And that's kind of our entire mentality. Building the app itself is to try to become something that's very simple, easy to use as a whole for the average investor, bringing more high-level assets to retail investors that have not had access to those before. We don't think that it's any different than what Robinhood did by just making a, you know accessible assets more accessible, right? Similar to the collectibles market. They have, everybody can do collectibles. They get the collectibles market, but then collectibles.com and Masterworks and Rally Road come and they build a secondary market around it making it more liquid, uh, easier to get in at different levels for different levels of investors. You know, So if I'm a millionaire, I can go buy this fancy car, but if I'm not, I can't you know, get the benefits of this fancy car, right? This Mercedes that appreciated in value from 100,000 to 8 million, right? It's actually kind of nuts how those things happen, but. You know, you, you use the word membership, and I kind of wanted to shift the conversation here a little bit. Um, you know, you talk, you talk to different platforms. I've talked to different platforms, and a lot of different companies are starting to use their NFT as a membership, right? And then the natural progression for that is a DAO, right? A decentralized autonomous organization. That was a buzzword for, I would say, for a while. It's kind of, you know, settled down a little bit. And I mentioned DAOs because that was also kind of this gray area uh, legally, right? And it, it really came to light when the, this group of guys were trying to buy the, a copy of the Constitution. I don't know if you guys remember that. Yeah. Yep. And, and it was it went viral, right? And, and I mean, they raised something like 40, you know, they had like something like 50 something million dollars, but they could only bid up to 40 because of costs. And then news came out like how limited uh, people were, how little they knew about exactly what their standing was in the member in the DAO membership, what the token entitled them to, and so much. I want to have a conversation about DAOs. What is the current uh, legal landscape there? How have they changed over the last, say, six months to a year? 
So there, there is not a lot of regulatory clarity about DAOs. And this is a good example of where technology has facilitated capital formation and, you know, de facto entity creation that's sort of outside of the rails that have been established under current regulations. There's a handful of states, Tennessee, um, most recently, that passed DAO LLC legislation. Uh, Wyoming was the first to, to do that. I think that there's principal risks associated with DAOs really depends on if its goal is to operate as an operating entity or if its goal is to be an investment entity. And then from there, you've sort of got to choose your own adventure of, of landmines that you need to avoid. But there are a lot of risks for people that are participating in DAOs without a limited liability shield. For example, if you've got a group of people operating together, then you probably have, from a legal standpoint, a de facto general partnership. So you could, in theory, be unlimitedly liable for any actions of anyone else in your DAO. That's just one one risk. And I uh, you know, haven't analyzed that scenario fully, but other concerns are, you know, if you've got a, you sold DAO interests, well, you can certainly do it without complying with securities laws. And that's a problem too. Um, and then, you know, finally, I think the, the third principal area of concern from a legal standpoint is, you know, just simply regulatory compliance. You know, if you do have a de facto partnership, do you need to be issuing, you know, K-1s to every member? Do they, you know, what is the general governance of the entity? Or, or, or the organization, you know, all of this stuff can be done on chain, uh, but that doesn't make it in the eyes of, you know, legal entity status. It makes it much more complicated. So uh, there's a lot there to unpack <laughs> and a lot of uh, a lot of things that I think uh, we've been thinking about internally at Frost Brown Todd. But at the end of the day, what I think is needed is structures and planning and on the front end, because a lot of times people get into these and it's sort of like the dog that caught the car. You know, the constitution does a great example. We raised all this money. It was super easy. Uh, well, first of all, we failed to get the constitution, but uh, now what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he makes a great point. It's the same thing that happens in any emerging technology. It moves really fast. Developers, they love frictionless environments that they can develop in quickly. They can explore and try to innovate on current systems. But when they see the rules regulation, they start to slow down, you know, and that's what's occurring now. They ran fast. They got some very exciting vehicles together. Uh, they showed its value. They showed the, that the technology could escalate, scale, you know, increase reach increase efficiencies across some of these metrics or some of these areas that used to be just be done via a middle office, back office, legal, uh, a lot of communications, you know, now you can do it through an app, right? More or less. It, it pointed to the fact that we have something. Drew now points to the fact that, okay, you've got something, but what do you do with it? You have to do it the right way. Otherwise you could get in trouble, right? There's a lot of uh, ifs that, that occur and technology can't account for every if. But we can identify where it can increase efficiency. And I think that's the stage that DAOs are in right now is, you know, a lot of these guys that did spin up some really exciting vehicles and raised a ton of money for various purposes, you know, whether it's an investment vehicle or otherwise, they now have to figure out how to manage not only the technology, not only the money, but the people. And, you know, people are pretty complicated. (laughs) So, 
Yeah, and I'm I'm actually personally excited about it. We want to be tokenizing, you know, DAOs, uh, their ownership interests under you know securities tokenization. So basically, taking those that rule set, guiding them into a um, compliant framework under the SEC or or wherever else they need to be, and then bringing that to a larger user base, potential buyers or members of that LLC through the app itself, because it's really no different than being a member of a, uh, uh, you know, venture capital group, for example. In many cases, this is just a, an LLC that, uh, that has a bunch of non, you know, working owners or non-working members. You know, they're just participants or owners of the LLC, but not actually operating it, right? So, you know, that, those, some of those vehicles, some of the DAOs, not all DAOs, we are pretty excited about, you know, we just want to see some of those groups move towards the compliant, you know, way of doing it. And then uh, hopefully we'll be able to offer those to our users as well. How is being a, a DAO member or a DAO founder different in Tennessee than it is with, with that crypto bill than it is in any other part of the country, Wyoming as well? Yeah. The, so to me, the big, uh, the big change with the DAO LLC legislation is that the management of the entity can be delegated to a smart contract algorithm. So in this case, you can have programmatically governed entities, which you could in theory push off to a DAO membership that is separate and apart from the ownership of the entity itself. So this could be a scenario where, you know, you, you, the company itself has delegated its authority, its management authority outside of the entity where you could have governance, people providing governance via a governance token that would be separate from the ownership and the assets of the LLC. The, the question I've had with that structure is, you know, why would anyone want to participate in an LLC governance activity without the benefits of ownership, right? So there's surprisingly a, a number of DAOs that operate in, a, in that fashion where the governance token is the baseline utility token that kind of juices the entire network. But the whether it's a foundation that ultimately owns the owns the the DAO or um, even private companies, those individuals are not participating in the profits of the enterprise. So the Tennessee statute takes a step towards recognizing that framework as legal, um, which is a big step. Again, because I think primary, you know, a chief concern of a DAO formation is lack of limited liability for the participants. How about for people that want to partake in the profit? Yeah, well, I think we're still stuck, as Brian mentioned, with fitting into a, an existing regulatory framework. So I think Reg A Plus, for example, has a probably a promising path to be able to issue um, DAO ownership interests a little more broadly than, you know, is currently uh, uh, available. <laughs> but again, all these things take time and money. And so that's, that's the challenge. You know, it's stupid easy to, to pull together a bunch of money in a DAO without doing it the right way. It's a lot harder and more, more expensive to do it in a compliant way. So that's where builders need to start taking it up and kind of taking it to the next step. I, could, I can definitely foresee one-stop shops on DAO formation. Right now, there's a lot of technology tools that are around DAOs, but not a lot about compliant DAO organizing. And so to me, those are the kind of the steps that need to be taken 
in the in the builder community to get us where we need to be. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about earlier, it's just builders want to move fast. They want to take advantage of of a wave. You know, when crypto's flying high, people are looking for things to get into. And the thing that prevents you from moving fast is having to spin up, you know, a foundation and another entity and this LLC and filing it properly with the state, with the federal government. And then all of a sudden you're you're in ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars in legal bills and you haven't been able to raise that money yet. And it's probably pushed off your launch date by a month or two. You know, so the, the developers sit there and go, well, I'm just going to raise the money first and then I'll, you know, ask for forgiveness later. And that might work for a large portion of people, you know, but some people will probably get caught in the trap uh, of, of uh, enforcement somewhere along the lines. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that occur, just like we're seeing that occur across uh, the cryptocurrency space. You know, and I'm a big proponent of cryptocurrency across the board. Uh, Bitcoin and so on and so forth, uh, but we're watching the the Ripple case go down and what's happening with the SEC. You watch it happen on individual enforcement actions. You know, even the non fraudulent ones. There's tons of out out there that are just fraudulent. And just be smart. You know, do your research before you jump into things. But the ones that aren't fraudulent are still going through enforcement actions. You know, because they moved fast, right? Um, and it's it's an exciting place to move fast. That's how innovation occurs. Uh, so. It was really exciting to see the president, you know, say something along the lines of, you know, we want to foster innovation, uh, but we have, we have a call for clarity now for, as an executive order, you know, what, what's happening, you know, and then all of a sudden the SEC hires 50 more people, you know, we have this stable coin push for 2022. I think by the end of 23, we're going to have more clarity than we've ever seen in the space. And that means clarity means adoption um, at an institutional level. You know, when you look at, what we've built so far, it's a $2 trillion market cap in the crypto space, you know, plus or minus depending on the movements of the day. But, um, you know, when you look at overall finance, it's 500 plus trillion dollars in, in just markets. We're dwarfed by the potential that blockchain has to revolutionize different levels of finance in general. So, you know, we're, we're excited to see how that that moves and that the, the president, the regulators and everybody's pushing this direction we just want them to do it in a responsible way to foster these these vehicles and give them the opportunity to flourish, you know, for us to innovate and become a little bit more efficient, right? Less waste is the goal. You know, my last question, and I want to thank you guys for taking the time. And it's more of a kind of like a, a broad question is, can a, a decentralized, you know, finance, you know, space truly flourish, right? If it's there such thing as an overregulation, or if, you know, Congress is stepping in with a, a bunch of laws or is that not the case at all? You know, when we talk about regulation, are we simply talking about having some guardrails to work with? I think if they wanted to kill it, well, first of all, the 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 horse is out of the barn, so it's too late. But they they could take steps that they have not taken to dramatically curtail development of this space. And so my my general broad view is that they're going after bad actors. That's where the priorities are. Um, in particular, the SEC speaks louder than most regulators, but there's a crowd of other regulators that arguably have, you know, probably better uh, a better stake to the territory than the SEC. You know, the CFTC being one of them, which is a lot quieter and a lot more observant of what's going on. But again, I think we all 
you know, as practitioners in the space are obviously watching all this very closely, but the point is to work within the, the, the frameworks that we have. Um, and as they develop, we, we, we obviously want to input on that process and, uh, you know, a conversation is important and I've seen that willingness so far and I expect it to continue because again, no, it's far too late to unring the bell of, of crypto blockchain and everything else. And, the last thing the regulators want to do is scare everyone so that they leave the United States. <laughs> yeah. Like we, we've historically been a country of innovation. Uh, it's provided us a lot of opportunity and a lot of growth and a lot of wealth creation. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, the regulators are in a hurry to change that. You know, I think they want to foster that, you know, and it's just about investor protections. They just have to move, you know, in a good pace, but in a way that allows us to communicate with them, they always say, hey, come companies like Acquire and others, come talk to us. Tell us what you're doing. Tell us, you know, what the issues are with our current regulation. How can we improve? And they want to also have a say in how we do business. You know, they want to say, look, what you're trying to do may or may not be good for these reasons. You know, we've experienced this historically with um, markets or with certain investors having issues or being taken advantage of certain demographics of people, you know, so ultimately I think it's a collaborative process. We're at this kind of tipping point. Uh, like I said, I think by the end of 23, we're looking at some, some big moves that are already underway. And, you know, I don't think anybody's going to stifle the innovation, but the question is how much will they foster it? So much to think about heading into, you know, the rest of the year. It'll be really interesting to see how the markets play out. Thanks so much again, guys. I, th I think there's there's a little bit more clarity, right? Uh, when we're talking about what you guys are building and how, you know, how it's different. You're innovating, but it's not the same kind of innovation as you mentioned, you know, with the Bitcoin, the stable coins. And it's such a wide world out there and people need to understand the difference. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, man. This was a great discussion about blockchain and why it carries advantages over traditional methods. Brian really lays out how he is using blockchain to make for a better run investment platform. Andrew's legal insight into cryptocurrency, blockchain, and DAOs are proving invaluable as Brian is set to grow and launch Acquire. Many thanks to Brian and Drew for joining me on the podcast. Always great to talk alternative investments, plus the blockchain, plus regulatory stuff. And a big thanks to you for spending part of your day with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, let others know about it or leave a review or a comment. Until the next time, take care.